From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. So in the interest of making sure that this is a PG-rated, family-friendly podcast, I will not be reading excerpts from Dreaming in Cuban. No. Although that did happen at the House Education it, it, Committee, it was, and we'll get into it that It was a in just very a real thing and a rather <laughs> salacious thing that came up in House Education. This was Common Core Week in House Education. You were there for both days. I was there for, for Wednesday. Five and a half hours of hearings, roughly speaking. Right out of the gate. Um, I mean, this is the second week, I want to say, of the 2020 legislative yeah, session. Yeah, it is. We're feels still like only the, two weeks in. feels like the second month. But right away, getting into a contentious, highly anticipated hearing. And, and what it is, is the legislature taking a look at these academic standards. It's kind of a complicated, nuanced reason why they're doing it. But it has to do with this administrative rules review that we've talked about for months. But regardless of the nuts and bolts... These academic standards are back in front of the House Education Committee. Significant interest. Um, Wednesday was the first full day of hearings. It was limited to English language arts standards. Uh, it filled two committee hearings. There were committee hearing rooms. There was an overflow room. Um, easily more than 100 people between the two rooms interested in this process. It started over again on Thursday with math. Um, another packed committee room, maybe not quite as packed as the, the day before, but as expected, it got a little contentious. And, and yeah. several members of the House Education Committee have signaled that they're interested in taking a real strong look at perhaps repealing all of the English and math standards. Haven't really heard what, if anything, they would replace them with, but uh it was an intense, highly anticipated right, hearing, right. and it sort of lived up to expectations. Do you want to start with right. day one? Or? Right, and and what kind of jumped out at me at day one, and maybe didn't surprise me too much about day one, because we knew that this was going to happen as well, educators came out in support of keeping the standards in place, and by the tally that we... More than three to one. Right, and for both days of the hearings, there were more speakers in favor of retaining the standards than... Uh, repealing or editing the standards. Right. And you had educator after educator saying, in, in essence, if we get rid of the standards now, it's going to cost millions of dollars and it's going to create a lot of upheaval. It's going to cost millions to align to a new set of standards, whatever those standards look like. And then we have to test to it. We, we may need to new textbooks, new curriculum. Uh, Karen Echeverria from the School Boards Association made the point of... Uh, saying that if you repeal the standards and you go to a new standard and you go to a new assessment model, it will be impossible to compare the new yep. assessment scores with the old assessment scores. And, you know, leg legislators like that accountability. They like that uh, that longitudinal yeah. accountability to look year to year to see how students are performing. You would lose that with a new set of standards. I thought that was an interesting point that she made. But, you know, you had educators saying, and a lot of it was anecdotal, but saying, these are rigorous standards. Uh, they require uh, critical thinking. They build upon themselves. So what uh, a kid is expected to do in third grade English language arts segues into what they're expected to do, to do in fourth grade and beyond. Um, the, the opposition, uh, you had a couple of past and present school board members testify. You had the Idaho Freedom Foundation. We'll get to them in a minute. Kind of an unorthodox uh, approach to this hearing in that Dorothy Moon, the state representative from, from Stanley yeah. area, 
one of the leading opponents of Common Core, she was actually a witness. She actually kind of led the testimony in opposition to the standards, which which was unorthodox. I'd never, you know, I, I mean, I think this is my 10th year of covering the legislative session every single day. And, and I'd never really seen that before. Obviously, legislators speak and testify in committee when they're sponsoring a bill and they introduce the legislation. But to get up on in a public hearing, it was unorthodox only because, number one, I haven't really seen it play out that way. But number two, Representative Moon is a member of the committee can make any motion she wants, can speak any time that she wants during committee, can it, like has this power that the public doesn't have. And so ostensibly, these were public hearings uh, to get the public's input on these standards. And, and she was given the opportunity to testify first, or at least early on, uh, both Wednesday and Thursday. And she did have concerns that maybe some of these people that were emailing her, her constituents from the Salmon chalice area weren't able to travel to the state house and make their voices heard and i get that um but it was interesting and and it got a little heated on the second day of her testimony a little bit of a back and forth with her and garden city democrat john mccrosty who uh is an educator uh they went behind closed doors they had a quick recess and then resumed the hearing but it was odd uh and then you know just the mechanics of the hearing at the beginning, they let everybody talk for as long as they wanted, and they balanced it pro, con, pro, con. But as we got into the hearing, there were many more people who were in favor of the standards. But then particularly on the second day, they were cut short. They were given first three minutes, then a minute and a half, and then they were cut off uh, in some cases. And so I, I, I get it. It was a contentious hearing. It was stressful. There were probably more people that wanted to talk than they had time allotted for, but it just felt like a weird hearing. Well, um, and, and what was weird about it, too, from my perspective watching it, was um, it's not just a hearing about the standards. And it quickly oh, yeah, becomes it drifted, a discussion it drifted about, about assessments, yeah. uh, the SBAC assessment that's aligned to Common Core, uh, which has come, uh, come under criticism sure. from educators. Uh, curriculum, which is a locally driven decision. What kind of curriculum do you use to align to the standards and to get students to standards? You know, Ryan Kirby, who, who chaired the, yeah. the the hearings in House Education, kind of foreshadowed that there was going to be some drift into curriculum and uh, and assessments and talking about the standards. I think that's understandable to a point. But a lot of the testimony, I thought really had nothing to do with the standards, but had to do with the curriculum. And to, to loop back to Dreaming in Cuban quickly, yeah. uh, we heard from Sonia Harris. She is a school trustee in Blackfoot. She said uh, that she feels like her school district is under pressure. She didn't say where the pressure comes from. Maybe it's an internal pressure. It was kind of the way it sounded to me. Pressure to buy curriculum materials from vendors who tout their curriculum as being aligned to the Common Core standards. She read a section from Dreaming Cuban, a novel that is one of the recommended or one of the suggested works in one of the uh, curriculum packages. It was a racy passage. There's no two ways around that. Uh, I heard privately after the fact, some folks surprised that she was not gaveled down for, uh, for reading a uh, pretty racy passage from, from, from a book. And what yeah. she was saying is, 
now as a school board, we're going to have to review every piece of curriculum and make sure that there's nothing out of bounds. Which well, that sounds kind of like the job. Sounds like what yeah, what trustees do when you go through the, the painstaking. It would be weird if they. Process. I mean, it would be really weird for a school board member to approve and implement a curriculum that they were unfamiliar with. So I, I didn't follow because that. Because really. the fallout from a, from a bad curriculum or a controversial curriculum falls back on the elected trustees. I mean, yeah. yeah, parents are going to go to the school board and say, hey, what's going on here? Why is my kid being told to read this stuff? I heard several educators say that. I mean, Peggy Hoy, an instructional coach from Twin Falls, said, I haven't really heard anybody say anything about an individual standard they have a problem with. I've heard people discuss ways they're concerned about how those standards were implemented. But people were talking about everything from individual quizzes to individual assignments and the way the teachers taught. And they had concerns with those. And as Peggy Hoy and several other people pointed out, those really appeared like local issues uh, that belong before a local school board. Those are not the standards themselves, which is what the hearing was about. But if there's a textbook or a novel that you have a problem with, or an individual homework assignment that confuses you as a parent, or the way a quiz was graded or a group activity was handled, those are all local decisions. Mm -hmm. That's not in the standards. The standards are, and, and we have a lot of educators who listen to this podcast, and so this will be reviewed, but the standards are merely a set of expectations that students are expected to meet or exceed by the end of a given school year. By the end of fourth grade, a student should be able to use critical thinking skills uh, and determine point of view and, and narrative, narrative voice. Things, things like that. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about the way a quiz needs to be graded or a group activity well, needs to be handled. to or, support the standards. And so that, that was weird. The only people I heard actually discuss standards themselves were officials from the State Department of Education, the State Board of Education, and one math teacher. Um, a lot of other people were just talking about individual gripes they have basically with their local classroom is mm -hmm. what it sounded like. And let's try to then unwrap this and, and get down to a discussion of the standards because ultimately this should be a vote when the vote does come down on whether the standards deserve to remain in place. Again, what we heard from educators, uh, folks in the classrooms and in, in the field saying, we're, we're getting used to these standards. We're using them. They're an improvement. Uh, let's not throw them out. You know, let's not go through the the upheaval that would come with aligning to a new set of standards. Go back to the Freedom Foundation yeah. because let's not mince words here. The Freedom Foundation is one of the driving forces, if not the driving force behind this whole Common Core repeal movement. They've been putting the word out um, among their supporters. They've organized the opposition. Their officials were there, both live tweeting the, the meeting and speaking in person. And one of the main points that I heard Fred Birnbaum, uh, the vice president, I believe, for the Idaho Freedom yeah. Foundation make was it seems like the standards were sold on improving student outcomes, basically student achievement in the state of Idaho. He mm -hmm. cited about a decade's worth of NAEP scores. That's the nation's report card, which is not given to every student, and it's not given every year. But he cited that and a couple of other indicators suggesting that student achievement and outcomes are for all intents and purposes, flat, and, and, since and, the standards have been implemented. And therefore, he's saying that they have failed to live up to expectations. And, and to be fair, that's what the national research indicates. He, he's not out of line when he says that, uh, as I did my piece for Thursday. I thought that was one of, of the best points all step week. step back uh, piece about how Idaho's Common Core debate is a lot like the national Common Core debate. 
the national numbers on the NAEP are flat. A supporter cannot point to the NAEP numbers and say, look, Common Core is making a big difference in the classroom. Kids are learning and improving. Right. Conversely, a critic cannot point to those NAEP numbers and say, oh my goodness, the scores are cratering. Common Core is, is, the is, reason. is dumbing down kids. Yeah. You can't say that. The numbers just haven't moved very much. So uh, Fred Birnbaum's argument was, in, a in essence, saying, whatever we replace the standards with, probably can't do worse than the current standards. And, That's and that a was big not, assumption. And, and that was not supported by any evidence that he provided. But I found it interesting. And, you know, I've kind of gone back and forth offline with, uh, with Wayne Hoffman, the president of the Freedom Foundation, about this. I found it curious that the Freedom Foundation is an organization that talks about fiscal conservatism, that talks about trying to run a frugal state government. I mean, they're, they're, they're spending hawks. Mm -hmm. And generally... And we see it over and over from from this group, very skeptical, sometimes almost a uh, fear of the unknown when it comes to any kind of uh, big policy change. Here you had the Freedom Foundation saying, we don't know, we're not really suggesting what new standards would look like or how much it would cost to implement new standards, but basically saying, hey, Trust let's, us. let's throw the dice. Yeah. Let's do new standards in, in Idaho uh, because the, the outcome can't be much worse than what we're seeing with Common Core. I find it. A curious argument, especially uh, given the source. Given And also given that officials from the state board and the state department suggested, again, that that would cost millions of dollars to develop local standards, purchase new curriculum materials, and design an assessment that would be uh, aligned to those standards. They said it could take several years and millions and millions of dollars. And, and it's a sort of an unknown, it's sort of a leap into the void. And, and also suggested, and I thought uh, State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra had a, a valid point when she testified on Wednesday. She said, these standards come up every five years. Legislature gets to review academic standards on this five-year rolling basis. So these core standards would come back probably in the next couple of years. I think she said 2022. 2022. Yeah. And she said, look, there are things I want to change in the standards myself. I want to make them more Idaho-specific. Let's let the standards stay in place as is. Let's not throw the whole thing out and just, you know, you know, take a take a blowtorch to academic standards. Let's get back in a couple of years. There are tweaks she'd like to see. There are probably tweaks legislators and education stakeholders would like to see. Let's, you know, let's do kind of more of a slow evolution of the standards as opposed to uh, a, a just a deconstruction of the standards. But, you know... You watch House Education a lot more closely than I do. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and you you're you're doing doing the Lord's work there, hour after hour in, in House Education. As I watch that committee, I mean, I guess I would be surprised if uh, if it doesn't come down to a vote on Common Core. I would be not surprised at all if this committee voted to repeal or greatly scale back Common Core. Yeah, I, I think that you have to. I'm operating from where I say under the assumption that there's a likelihood that the House Education Committee will repeal some or all of the math and English standards. We may get to science standards next week, more about that in a second. And so that really puts the pressure on the Senate in a way because of this arcane rules process in the legislature. And it basically, each rule is treated a little bit differently. There's a few different classifications, but generally speaking, in order to repeal these standards, the House and Senate would both need to agree. So let's say the House takes the step of repealing all English language arts common core aligned standards. The Senate would also need to take that same step to remove the standards from the books. If the Senate doesn't go along with it, the standards 
the standards remain in place despite the Which fact is exactly what we yeah. saw happen two years ago with science standards so if this whole process and it sounds familiar, sounds familiar it is, it is. Yeah. Uh, because the legislature adopted these standards in the first place uh, they fought about them over the years and, and now here we are again but that's generally the process uh, it's not enough just for the house to repeal them the senate would have to go along also right and and at this point i mean i watch senate education more closely uh, sure I, and i don't have a good read yet on what Senate education is even going to do with these rules. Uh, when it comes up, uh, Stephen Thane, who's uh, the vice chair of Senate education, he runs the rules process much as Ryan Kirby does on the House side. Uh, Thane has said, well, we're just letting the House work its way through and then we'll start to vote on the new rules, uh, which may or may not be affected by what happens with the existing rules, this omnibus rule that uh, the House is you know, laboriously working its way through. He's, you know, he's really not signaled. Uh, Chairman Dean Mortimer hasn't really signaled what the Senate's intentions are with Common Core, with science standards. We do know going way back in time, several years, uh, Stephen Thane has expressed opposition or concerns about Common Core and about the assessment aligned. Correct. That's several years down the road from, from where we are today. So it may or may not be an accurate reflection of... Uh, what he wants to do or what he would like to see done on the Senate side. I, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you know, were not there in, in 2011 when the Senate uh, and when, when the legislature approved Common Core. So it'd be fairly difficult to predict what's going to happen on the Senate side, especially with the Common Core standards. But obviously, just it's a fluid situation. And right now, all the action taking place in the House. Yeah, the Senate has not yet demonstrated the outright enthusiasm uh, to scrutinize these standards in the way that the House has. But I think the Senate's strategy is to kind of step back, see what the House does, and then make a decision. I think that's how it's sort of playing out uh, right now, but we're going to continue to stay on top of it. Mentioned science standards a few minutes ago. Originally, we were under the impression that that hearing would begin earlier next week. Um, but here, as we record this on Friday, January 17th, hearing there may be a scheduling change afoot. Have not been able to confirm that. So the best advice I can give is to watch the homepage, idahoednews.org, and watch our Twitter feed, especially if you're interested in following that hearing or perhaps or traveling right. to the State House to testify. I'm going to try and confirm it today. Um, but it's just a, a wrinkle that came up right before we turned the microphone on. We do think they will get to a science standards hearing, uh, but you can watch the legislature's website and the Idaho Ed News um, homepage for the latest, and we'll be on top of that. And we'll continue to follow the debate over standards uh, and over rules as, as the session goes along. Right, because we know there's intense interest in what's happening with these academic standards and with these hearings on standards. We're going to do our, our best to keep you current on what's happening, when it's happening, and what happens next. So we're watching it very closely. That's how we're spending much of the first two weeks of the legislative session. But shifting gears from this uh, second week of the session, something historic happened in the House on Thursday, which we didn't write about, but I think we should spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about because it was extraordinary. For the first time, perhaps in state history... According to Betsy Russell, who... Did, who knows the these homework, things? Who, who does the homework like nobody else does? The House expelled a member uh, on Thursday, and they voted to expel former Representative John Green, a Republican from Rathdrum. They voted to expel him unanimously on Thursday because on Wednesday he had been convicted of a felony in a federal court down in Texas 
in both the Idaho state constitution and state law, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially say someone convicted of a felony is unqualified to hold office in the state of Idaho. Right. And so the legislature found itself in an interesting position. But Kevin, we wanted to talk about how the legislature handled this historic, yeah. mm-hmm. significant, difficult decision. Um, right. I mean, so things moved quickly mm-hmm. on Thursday. Um, by about midday, the uh, legislature had a, an opinion from the attorney general's office, Correct. which sometimes uh, legislators place more weight on a, an attorney general's opinion than other times. But in this case, the AG's <laughs> office said, based on their reading uh, of, of the Constitution, that uh, John Green was no longer qualified to serve in light of his conviction uh, of a felony in, in federal court. Uh, they said, yes, uh, you know, Green could appeal. He, he can do that. But at this point, he is still a convicted felon and not, uh, not qualified to serve. So, and he gave an AP. Uh, he gave an interview with the AP saying he expects to serve time in prison. He expects to serve time in prison, but in that same interview with the AP, he Not said resigning. he had no intention of resigning, right. which which put the onus on the House to decide well what to do with a convicted felon. Um, what the House did do, what the House Republicans did do, was they held a caucus uh, that began shortly before noon, ran for about two hours yep. almost. I yep. want to say, yeah, came out of that caucus and you had a ringside seat with uh, about what happened next. Yeah, Scott Bedke, rather than presiding over the floor session, took his seat his seat with the rest of the members, which rarely happens, maybe once or twice a year. It only happens when he plans to testify. Or, or take or, action. Or yeah. And so he made a motion to vacate uh, former Representative Green's seat. I want to say it was in District 2, but it was it one is. of the House yes. seats there. North, North Idaho. It was handled without any debate. A unanimous 65 to 0 vote came down. That means there were five people who didn't vote. Um, But the public really doesn't know what that debate was all about. Uh, Speaker Bedke held a press conference that I attended a few moments after the vote. But this two-hour discussion about how to handle a sitting representative who had been convicted of a felony and... It, was, it didn't really play out in public, and the people of District 2 really don't have a lot of insight into that debate and that discussion. We do know um, that they will fill that seat, that uh, the local precinct, the, the local Republican Party is going to be able to submit names for successors to Governor Brad Little, who can then appoint a new representative, so it won't be empty for long. Um, but a lot of it played out behind closed right. doors, and obviously, because it took two hours, it was not... An open and shut case, uh, so to speak. Yeah, well, you know, bear with us here because I, I'm, some of you are probably rolling your eyes because you're thinking, okay, here comes another transparency sermon from, from Clark and Kevin. But this was an extraordinary decision that was made by the House. And, and as Betsy Russell reported, it may be an unprecedented decision that was made by, by House Republicans. The, the House voted to expel one of its own. And... Obviously, if you're having a two-hour caucus meeting to to go over this, there were opinions that were raised. I think Bedke even said as much that there were, were some members of the caucus who, you know, had, you know, concerns, reservations, questions about what to do next. At the press conference, I think Betsy asked him, why did it take two hours to make the decision? And he said... Well, you guys are smart enough to figure out why that would have been. Okay, so fill in the blanks. They were not spending two hours, you know, you know, just shooting the breeze. I mean, I, I suspect that there was pretty uh, intense d- 
discussion uh, leading up to you know a decision of great gravity. I mean, you don't just kick out a House member without giving it some thought and giving it some debate. But all of that debate took place behind closed doors, and and that that troubles me because if you're going to make this sort of an extraordinary decision, if you're going to take this kind of a step, I, I think the voters deserve to know the, the thinking behind that. Um, 15,313 people voted for John Green in November of 2018. They really don't have an explanation of why the House saw, saw it necessary to fire John Green. And I think voters you know, deserve to have that explanation. I think voters deserve to also know how their legislators felt about this decision. If their yeah. legislators were asking questions, raising uh, raising concerns, I, I think that all should have played out in the public. This is not a jury, and this is not a deliberation where you know the jury meets behind closed doors. They come out, they read the verdict. Uh, the The jury is polled afterwards, and everybody you know you know says that they agreed with the verdict. These are elected officials who held a discussion about firing a fellow elected official behind closed doors and had no debate in public, had no discussion in public. And then that's and that's troubling. I mean, you know, I think constituents had a right to know much more about this process and how it played out. So, you know, the end of my transparency sermon. But, yeah. you know, I, I think, you know, I think the House would have done itself much more of a service by being more transparent in this process. Yeah, I mean, to his credit, Bedke did come out and meet with reporters for about 10 minutes afterwards. In terms of an explanation, he did say it was because... The state constitution and state law both say that upon conviction of a felony, you are unqualified to hold office in the state of Idaho. He said there was a little bit of wordsmithing uh, because the state constitution and state law do not use the exact same language. And so there was debate, which one is controlling? Do we want to, how do we want to word this? And the, the phrase that he used is vacate the seat. Uh, but he also told reporters that whatever verb you want to use, expelled, fired, ousted, vacated, whatever, uh, the for all intents and purposes, the end result is uh, Rep former Representative John Green was expelled from the legislature. But but, but in, in, in fairness, I mean, the, the Scott Bedke does not speak no. for 56 no. House Republicans. No. And, and I don't think he would pretend to be able to speak for 56 House Republicans who, who caucused on this issue. You know, I think the best he could do in the presser on Thursday was just kind of give a general sense of what the tone of the conversation was, what the tenor of the caucus was, you know, what was discussed. But you don't get the the real nuts and bolts of you know who said what, why they said it, how how the the logic and how right. the thinking evolved to the point where everybody came out and voted in in favor of the expulsion. And right, that's what was missing on Thursday. Right, and we're going to move on. But this was just kind of another example of this feels like a really contentious legislative session already. Um, we've both been around the block a time or two. Generally speaking, the first few weeks of legislative sessions, folks are happy to be back and getting along and it's going well and, and, and it kind of starts at a slower pace and then builds. This feels like it was contentious right out of the gate. There was lingering disagreement um, over rules, over rules uh, a bit of a power struggle between the House and Senate in that area that's playing out behind the scenes, which is 
visibly frustrated the speaker from and time to time. Could play very publicly with the education committees, depending on what uh, yeah. happens with some of these uh, rules that the House Education Committee is dealing with. The contentious, the hearing on Common Core math was a little contentious on Thursday, and then less than five minutes after that ended is when Republicans went up to the floor and then moved into that caucus session to talk about Representative Green. It it it's not off to a great start. It feels divisive and contentious and. And I don't know, it feels different than a lot of other legislative sessions. That doesn't mean that we're doomed here. Um, but we're going to be there a while. Get s- yeah, starting off on a, a little bit of a weird foot. And and I got to tell you, the House Education Committee is moving slowly through these rules. A lot of people would say that's a good thing. But I think that could really drive the length of the session and extend it because we're about to begin the third week of the session. Still knee-deep in rules. Still no resolution on rules. And the House Education Committee has been told that they can't really move forward with new bills and legislation until they have the rules process well in hand. And based on the first two weeks, I would think House Education is at least, at a minimum, at least two more weeks away from getting through rules. Right. Maybe much longer. When the rules issue came up in Senate Education on Thursday... uh, uh, I, I think it was Thane or Mortimer uh, said that uh, their hope is that they can be done with rules in a, w- within two weeks and voting on rules within two weeks. That sounds pretty hopeful. That sounds uh, that sounds pretty uh, optimistic, and I'm not sure they're going to get there it, because a lot of it really is not in their in, in their court. It really depends on what does the House do and when does the House do it. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back because you you also launched a, a project this week that uh, we did want to spend a, a couple of minutes introducing readers to because this is going to go beyond the legislative session. It's going to have a life beyond the legislative session because we assume that there is going to be life beyond the legislative session. But let's let's talk about your project on accountability. Yeah, on uh, on Thursday of this week, I announced my new accountability project. Kind of teased it out over the last two weeks, but basically I'm making a year-long commitment throughout 2020 to closely track three of our education leaders, and that's Governor Brad Little, it's State Superintendent Sherry Ybarra, and it's State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield. And so why did I pick those three, and why did I pick this project? It really comes back to the summer of 2019, which I spent following the task force. Mm -hmm. And the task force was talking about accountability, and I just kept coming back to something that Bill Gilbert, uh, one of the co-chairs of the task force, Co-chair said. Co-chair of the task force with Debbie Critchfield. He talked about accountability starting at the top and about how leadership can change culture. And I thought, okay, these folks set accountability for our schools, but what? But what's accountability look like for these leaders? Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to track these three individuals uh, throughout the year. How do they approach education? What policy proposals do they put forward? How do their budget proposals fare? What happens to these task force recommendations? How often are they meeting with the legislature and engaging with the legislature? And uh, we're going to look at student achievement metrics. But we're also asking our readers, education stakeholders, and other policymakers to weigh in on what they expect out of their governor, out of their state superintendent, out of their state board president. And so I hope that parents, professional educators, education stakeholders, our readers can share with me what's important to them and what kind of things that I can look at throughout this project. And so basically, I I rolled the project out on Thursday. If you head to the homepage at idahoednews.org, the headline says, Idaho Ed News announces new accountability reporting project. 
And, and that's where I lay it out. But the real meat of the project comes throughout the year. And I'm going to have three different sort of status checks. And the first one, the first big one is going to come up at the end of the legislative session, hopefully in April. <laughs> uh, but, but, but we'll Whenever see. Whenever it ends. Whenever it ends. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to check in at the end of April or whenever the session ends. What did they do during the session? How did they approach it? What changed? What didn't? Who had success? You know, who was driving the change? Who was sitting on the sidelines? The next check-in will come at the beginning of the upcoming school year, uh, the 2020-2021 school year in August or September. And then we'll have a final check-in at the end of the calendar year in December and kind of try to put it all together for everybody. But I'd really like to hear from our listeners and our readers, whether you're a parent, whether you're a taxpayer, whether you're a school principal or a school board member or a professional educator, I'd love to hear from you. And so my email address is in the article, but it's first initial, last name, ccorbin at idahoednews.org. You can also reach out on Twitter. I'm just at Clark Corbin on Twitter. But I'd love to hear from you guys. What's important to you? What do you expect out of your leaders? And what do you expect out of education, whether it's your local school or for the state as a whole? But What's important to you this year? What matters to you and your family? And, and that's what I want to build into this project. So at the end of the day, the project will fail if I'm coming back at the end of the year and saying, me, Clark Corbin, you did a good job, you did a bad job, here's what matters, here's what didn't. That, that's a failed project. Uh, I want input from people all around the state, and I also want input from the three leaders who I'm following mm -hmm. this year. And so before announcing the project, I reached out to Governor Little's office Superintendent Ybarra's office and the State Board of Education told them what was coming and invited their participation so that it's not just about me or Idaho Ed News. Hopefully it's about Idahoans. And that's what will make the project a success is if I provide a little bit more transparency into how our leaders at the top are approaching education and a little bit of accountability and we get the voices of Idahoans in there that would be success for me. No, it's an important project. It's a it's a novel project in that, you know, we're really trying to make this an interactive exercise. And at the end of the year, I'm going to be really interested to see, you know, how, how, how'd they do? And, yeah. and, you know, and by what metrics did we, you know, make that determination? So it's a great project. I'm really excited to see how this thing rolls out. And I'd love to hear from, you know, even if you think, oh, I'm just a parent or oh, I'm just a third grade teacher, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, so ccorbin at idahoednews.org, at Clark Corbin on Twitter. I'd love to hear what's important to you. Because sometimes I get tunnel vision, you know, sitting at the state house, watching the same conversations play out over and over and over again. Um, but I'd love to hear from principals, taxpayers, parents. Uh, I'd love to hear from anybody who has thoughts on this. With all of these projects, it seems like some of the best input we get and some of the most immediate input we get is from people who are living this yeah. issue, whether you're a parent of, of a kid, whether you're a teacher, whether you're an elected trustee or an administrator. You folks are on the front lines of this thing. Uh, what are you seeing? What are you hoping to see from these these three very powerful, very influential folks? Yeah. Uh, so look for that. Um, I'd love to hear from you. We'll have check-ins throughout the year, and we'll have a place on the homepage where everything will be put together. So even though it comes out in stages throughout the year, it'll all be in one resting place where you can find it all together. Um, so I'm excited about that, but let's move on. Next week's going to be a big week at the legislature, regardless of, of when we get back into the, the content standards hearings, but it's education week next week. And, and what's education week, Kevin? What's it mean to you and what are you going to follow? 
it means a lot of time in the uh, Joint Finance Appropriations Committee for for me, and it means the Budget Committee, the, the Budget Committee, and it means uh, it means we may have uh, some interesting uh, discussions in the Education Committees. So. Education Week is the week uh, that JFAC carves out to hear budget presentations from the four-year institutions, from the community colleges, and from the state superintendent. So it starts off right away Monday morning. Uh, the state board makes its budget recommendation and does its budget presentation. The University of Idaho is on tap for Monday, and it just keeps rolling. We'll have we'll hear from ISU and Lewis Clark State College on Tuesday. The community colleges get their day on Wednesday. State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra does the K-12 budget and does her K-12 budget re recommendations on Thursday and then Friday, Boise State University. But that's not all. I mean, that's that's the big, you know, that, that's the meat of what uh, Education Week is all about in the budget committee. But what usually happens, and we don't know yet because those uh, agendas aren't usually posted until maybe a day or so ahead of time, uh, these university officials, these college officials also... Uh, are usually in the education committees making uh, more of a general presentation, kind of a state of the college, state of the university kind of a thing. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. When Marlene Trump goes before the House Education Committee, it is going to be uh, it's going to be must see TV because you know this is the same committee. Um, you know, a majority of members of that committee signed that letter back in July, uh, Representative Barbara E. Hart's letter about uh, diversity and inclusion programs. This is uh, going to be interesting to see how, you know, that's going to be a fun uh, hearing to watch if and when that occurs. And again, I mean, this is President Trump's first year before the legislature. It'll be her first budget presentation. Scott Green on Monday uh, making his first budget presentation uh, on behalf of the University of Idaho. Uh, I'll be really interested to hear those budget presentations, too, because the universities are dealing with yeah. budget cuts deep budget cuts of the University of Idaho, uh, the fallout from a tuition freeze that they agreed to uh, to establish for next uh, next budget year. You know, and that the budget committee, I mean, that's where you get down to the, the nuts and bolts of where the money goes and how it's spent and whether the money is uh, going to meet needs or leave needs unmet. So, those budget presentations are going to be very, very, very interesting. I'm going to throw down a shameless plug here. And if you're interested in what happens to colleges and universities in the higher ed landscape, Kevin, you have become one of the state's experts in the situation on higher education from affordability uh, to tuition increases uh, to the budget concerns. And so this is a big week next week. But if you're at all concerned uh, sitting here listening or reading our articles about what's going to happen in higher ed or don't hear enough about the future of higher ed. Next week's going to be a big week, and, and you're the, the reporter to watch. You're the expert who has made this a, a project and a, and a passion for seven and, years. And, and the same invitation that we just made to you all on the accountability project, that applies to the higher ed coverage uh, this week and, in, and following, because I want to take an in-depth look at higher ed in the next few months in addition to what we do out of the legislature. So if you're a student, if you're a parent who's uh, supporting a student, if you work at one of the universities, if you're an employer who's concerned about, you know, you know, the graduates that you're going to want to hire uh, down the road and whether you're going to be able to fill positions down the road, krichard at idahoednews.org. That's K-R-I-C-H-E-R-T at idahoednews.org. Get in touch with me as we cover Education Week and beyond. 
follow me on Twitter as well, Kevin Richard. Um, I'd like to hear from you because uh, our coverage is only enhanced when we hear from folks who are uh, living the issue uh, firsthand. It's a big week next week. You're going to want to watch the homepage for sure. That's IdahoEdNews.org. I really hate to do this, but we had some breaking news kind of come through <laughs> as we were recording the podcast. Representative Ryan Kirby, the vice chair of House Education, who's in charge of the rules process, just emailed us both while the microphone was on saying that the science standards hearing will not be Monday the 20th. It will either be Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. I hate to do that because I know it's not helpful to anyone planning to travel to the state house other than to say don't come monday don't, don't come monday take take monday off uh i know it's frustrating that we don't know the day that the hearings will be held i just want to say that i'm feeling that frustration too uh but the latest greatest breaking news from three minutes ago uh real time was representative ryan kirby saying science standards will be either tuesday or wednesday when i get something more firm i'll update the homepage immediately I know that's not precise. I don't like that. I feel that frustration too. Uh, but, you know, they don't plan the meetings around my schedule, I got to say. I'm just the messenger. Welcome to our world. During the legislative uh, session, things move quickly. But what a session. It's going to be ongoing. I think it's going to go on for a lot longer. Uh, but Kevin and I are going to be there. And that's the commitment we make to follow this because it is so important, even though it's confusing and frustrating and uh, <laughs> it may change from day to day. Uh, but it's a commitment that we make and we view it's important. Uh, we think 2020 is a big year for education, which is why we're following higher ed and why I'm doing the accountability project. We think 2020 is a big, pivotal year uh, and a year where there's more competition for state resources than at any point since the state emerged from the Great Recession. A lot at stake, a lot on the line, uh, but a lot of priorities and a lot of compromising and, that's probably going to come forward this year. And we had a lot to get to in this podcast yeah. because I'm looking at it. We're, we're approaching 42 minutes on the podcast. It, it feels like this is a, an homage to Neil Peart, the greatest drummer of all time who passed away last week. This is a podcast of rush length <laughs> proportions, probably not of rush length quality, <laughs> but um, rest in peace, Neil Peart. And uh, thank you for listening. And we will be back with uh, yet another podcast next week. All right. Thanks so much. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs>